the flu could be bad this year. We, we never know about the flu until December, January, but we know COVID is surging and the presentations are so similar and the management is so different that uh, if we can minimize the number of people getting the flu, it will help. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Connecting ALS. I'm one of your hosts, Mike Stevenson, and I'm joined, as usual, by my co-host, Jeremy Holden. Jeremy, how is your week? Uh, it's so far so good. We're about halfway through as you and I are here talking, and yeah, it's been a productive week. It's been a good week. We are now starting to see some alarming increases in COVID diagnoses down here in North Carolina. I uh, just saw this morning a couple cases related to high schools. So like a lot of the rest of the country, we're just kind of staying tuned to those increases in numbers, the, whether we're calling it a spike or a surge or a peak. We're aware of that down here. It's, it, it stays part of our day-to-day -day existence. Very true here in the Midwest as well. Uh, record numbers in many of the states in our part of the country. And it's alarming. And I expect that we'll see some tighter restrictions and further guidance on how we should move forward as we, we really, really need to slow this thing down. And we, uh, this week, had a chance to speak to Lee Page from PVA about voter rights and access. We put that out in a bonus episode the other day. I encourage you all to go back and listen to that. But we also wanted to uh, touch on respiratory care because this is National Respiratory Care Week and uh, respiratory health is something that's very important always, but in particular during the pandemic. So we lined up a conversation with pulmonologist Dr. Lou Libby uh, from Oregon. And Jeremy, I thought as usual, uh, Dr. Libby, a wealth of information. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, we heard from Dr. Libby at the onset of the pandemic, one of our early episodes as a weekly podcast, and was interested to get his take, not just on the role of respiratory care in ALS clinic setting, a, kind of a key part of that multidisciplinary uh, care setting, but also where things are now in, in a pandemic that really has such an impact on respiratory health and just really get Dr. Libby's perspective several months into the pandemic and, of course, uh, as part of Respiratory Care Week. He's one of those people you just want to keep asking questions because he has so much information. So let's take a listen to our interview from earlier this week with Dr. Lou Libby. We're on the phone today with Dr. Lewis Libby, a pulmonary medicine and ALS specialist at the Oregon Clinic and the Providence Portland Medical Center ALS Certified Treatment Center of Excellence in Portland, Oregon. Dr. Libby is also a member of the ALS Association's Board of Trustees. Good morning, doctor. Thanks for joining us on Connecting ALS today. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you back on the show. And this week in October is Respiratory Care Awareness Week. And uh, there are a host of avenues we can venture down on that topic, doctor. But can we start with what that means, Respiratory Care Awareness uh, Week, and, and what someone in your field wants people to know? Respiratory care is a broad term. It means anything that improves our pulmonary health, our lung health. And there are a number of different levels that practitioners work in to uh, do that. And I suspect the main level of practitioners that this week is dedicated to is my colleagues who are called respiratory therapists. And these are 
highly trained, non-physician, not physician assistants, not nurse practitioners, not nurses, but they are trained specifically in everything they can do in a hospital, in a home, anywhere to help patients with breathing problems. They're called respiratory therapists. They're experts at things like oxygen and nebulizers and breathing machines and ventilators. They work in intensive care units. They work in homes. Every ALS center has a respiratory therapist. And in fact, one of our criteria to be a certified treatment center of excellence is to have a respiratory therapist at the clinic. It is not a requirement to have someone like me, a pulmonologist at the clinic, but the respiratory therapist is the one who does the testing, the breathing tests, the uh, tests where they yell at you to blow, blow, blow. And they're the ones who do a lot of the education about using the equipment, whether it's the uh, ventilators, the BiPAP machines, the trilogies, the cough assists, all those things. Hmm. So Respiratory Care Week really, I think, is aimed at what those people do, which is uh, education and management of respiratory equipment and testing to the benefit of patients around the world, ALS and non-ALS. And of course, we're having this conversation, Dr. Libby, during a time where respiratory care, respiratory health has been at the forefront of a lot of listeners' minds, a lot of people's minds across the country. Of course, as we're going through exposure to the coronavirus, the COVID-19 pandemic, and, and the impact that exposure to that virus could have on respiratory health. Can you talk a little bit about you know, practicing respiratory health in a clinical setting during a time of, of quarantine, social distancing, and a heightened alarm about just respiratory health in general? Anyone who's on the front lines of the COVID pandemic is experiencing all sorts of things right now. And at the very, very front of those lines is these respiratory therapists, RTs as they're commonly called, because they're the ones who are setting up the ventilators. Uh, they frequently help put the tubes into patients when they have to be put on a ventilator, all those sorts of things. So they're, they're right up front with those patients and at high risk for exposure. They're the ones putting on the space suits to protect themselves because they are going right down into the lung with suction catheters and everything else to keep people's lungs clean. So I owe a great debt of gratitude to these people who have helped me throughout my career in taking care of patients with any respiratory problems. With the pandemic surging again all over the country and, and people, particularly those living with ALS, choosing to stay home as much as possible to, to limit exposure, as Jeremy alluded to, more and more uh, clinic visits around the country are being conducted by a video conference using telehealth tools. How has that changed things for teams like yours, doctor? And are you still able to gather the information you need in that environment? That's an excellent question. And we've gone through various levels of protection of our ALS patients at, uh, at the clinic that I work at. And I know just even in Portland, and we have three certified clinics, each clinic does it a little differently. But the one I'm at, initially, we actually shut down for three weeks trying to figure out what are we going to do to protect the patients? Uh, what's the hospital going to do that we work with? How are we going to do all the things we normally do? Then we began opening up just doing virtual visits. And with the virtual visits, it's hard to impossible to do breathing tests. And the hospital felt breathing tests were very high risk. So they were sort of put on hold for another few weeks. The virtual visits actually worked much better than I expected they would work. Yes, there's some testing you can't do, but there's ways around a lot of that that you can get the information you need either through symptoms 
or other types of tests, functional tests instead of a, you know, for example, you ask someone, do you get short of breath lying down flat on your back? With ALS, if you get short of breath just lying down on your back, you've got quite weak respiratory muscles and you need some sort of support and intervention to help at that point. Now, if we were doing testing, we'd say, oh, if a certain test got the 50% of predicted, then you need help. Well, fortunately, the insurance companies allowed us to use our clinical judgment instead of all always having to have a number. So it did change things drastically, but I've gotten very used to it. When I sit with a patient and look at them on the computer and they're looking at me on the computer, it may take a little longer to get a feel for the patient and their family than if they're in person. But I also get a feel for their environment, where they're sitting in their home, what their home is like, whether they have dogs or not, you know, various things that are important to them. So there's there's some pluses and minuses to it. But I think on on the whole, I'd rather see people in, in person, but in reality, we get a lot done by virtual visits. Our clinic has now evolved to the point where we do about half of our visits virtually. It's up to the patient and the team, and the team will say, well, this is someone we think we should see for this test. This is something we can't do virtually, and then we'll bring them in, and they'll be seen in the clinic in person. So we have a, a mixture of virtual and non-virtual. As you probably know, at the ALS clinics generally, a patient is brought in and sits in one room for three or four hours and sees five, six, or seven practitioners. So virtually what we do is a patient, if they come in, they sit in the room. If they're virtual, they have a room, and the computer is on them in that room, and the practitioners rotate into that room. So it's an interesting transition. Occasionally, if I have a, a only patients who are virtual, I can do it from home, but I prefer to do it in the office because uh, even though I have to put on the mask and the shield and all that stuff and be careful, I at least get to say hello to people who I work with daily. And we've heard from some other folks in the clinical setting that this is something that's expanded use of telehealth while part of the emergency response to COVID, it's something that they'd like to see extend beyond the pandemic and become part of the clinical toolkit. Is that something that you would like to see, that this isn't something that we give back in terms of public policy outside of the pandemic, but becomes just kind of part of the clinical toolkit and is an offering for, for folks where it makes sense? Oh, absolutely. There's a lot of things we do in medicine that you don't need to see someone in person. For example, um, someone gets a blood test for their cholesterol or their hemoglobin A1C for their diabetes, and they're just coming in for to talk about the blood test result. You don't have to drive to the office, park the car, walk in, wait in the waiting room, wait in the office, and then see the doctor for 10 minutes to say, oh, you're doing great on this drug and uh, we don't want you to change anything. We'll see you in six months. You know, you can take a uh, one to two hour time period for the patient and suddenly it becomes 10 minutes. The, the doctor, it's still a, roughly the same amount of time. But, you know, if it's better for the patient, it's better for the doctors too. And you can do it at different hours. It's not so hard to do it at seven o'clock at night if you're sitting at home and just say, well, I'm going to do an hour's worth of patient visits tonight because a lot of my patients can't get off of work. So we'll just do it right here at seven o'clock at night from my home. So there's a real push to make this permanent. And I think we're moving in that direction. I, I've seen uh, information recently that CMS, which is Medicare, has approved it for, I think, for at least another six months. And I suspect it will very quickly become standard for all insurance companies to continue to pay for virtual visits and even phone visits, uh, because sometimes you don't even have to literally see someone, but you need more than a phone call. 
more than a brief phone call. They won't pay for the two minute phone call, but they'll pay for the 10 and 15 minute phone call. Right. And uh, doctor, what sort of things are you hearing from individuals living with ALS and their families just about kind of their general mindset and, and their clinical interactions in this environment in March when this all started to unfold? Of course, none of us knew kind of how long it would last and what we were in for in terms of the length of the pandemic. What's the general frame of mind that, that you're seeing from families about how they're enduring this time? Well, I think it's very, very hard for folks because of the social isolation. ALS patients are socially isolated anyways, more so than they would like just because of the disease, because of their communication challenges, because of their mobility challenges. So they're right off the bat, they have difficulty with socialization as much as they would like. And then I, you add on top of it that they're suddenly uh, this pandemic and they are the highest of the highest risk people to get COVID, um, if someone with ALS gets COVID, they know it's very, very life-threatening. So they are feeling that isolation more and more. But quite a few of them have said to me, you know, I was pretty much hunkered down before this because of my other problems. So it hasn't changed things drastically. It's still the most important thing to me is is my my family and my caregivers, and they are sort of my pod. So some people are doing okay with it, but I think in large part, it is a challenge. It's a big challenge not to have that social ability. And we see anxiety and we see depression. You know, if you look at the bigger picture in this country, there's a epidemic of suicide and drug overdoses that's probably related to it. And the ALS patients are not immune to that at all. I think one of the biggest challenges is people who have outside caregivers, not family care, care caregivers. Some of the caregivers are have been reluctant to work because they don't want to get infected. So it's hard enough to get a caregiver for an ALS patient who has advanced disease, and now it's drastically more difficult. I have one uh, patient who really requires 24-7 care because he's pretty much end-stage breathing problems with ALS. And his wife, uh, who's wonderful, was giving probably half to two-thirds of that. Now she's giving 95% of that. Mm. So it's, it's a real challenge, even if you have the financial wherewithal to hire folks for caregiving. Right. The availability of caregiving is, is so much more limited now because of covid yeah, and a good segue into November, where we'll be honoring Family Caregiver Awareness Month. Certainly a lot of exacerbated challenges that caregivers are facing, and you, and you touch on that with what you were just discussing. I, I, I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier in terms of uh, respiratory therapists being the folks who are often inserting the tubes. And when we think about surgical interventions for respiratory care, I know there was a concern at the outset of the pandemic about timing of non-emergency surgical options because hospitals were kind of seen as hotbeds. There were uh, shortages in different pockets of the country. And as we're now several months into the pandemic, how do you strike a balance between advising patients when to schedule something that is non-emergency, but is something that is going to become necessary at some point? Well, uh, you know, the main surgery that we, the, the, the main surgeries we address for ALS patients that are not emergency, but semi-elective are feeding tube placement and a tracheostomy. And sometimes a tracheostomy is an emergency situation. Patient comes into the emergency room, they can't breathe. We put down a temporary tube through the mouth and then a day or two later we do the tracheostomy. 
So that that didn't change with COVID. If they ended up in the emergency room in that situation, we do emergency surgeries and semi-emergent surgeries whenever we need to. But I did have two patients. This is interesting. It's sort of February 15th, where who I had said, it's time if you want to have a tracheostomy. And as you guys know, and I think many and many people listening to this know a very small minority of patients with ALS ever want a tracheostomy. A tracheostomy is a surgically placed hole in the windpipe at the base of the neck in the front to hook up to a ventilator for long-term ventilatory support. And only 5 or 10% of our patients decide to do that. The others do everything else they can and then want comfort at the end of their life. But I had two patients who I'd been talking to for a month or two about, you know, it's, it's if you want a tracheostomy, and they both said they did, if you still want a tracheostomy, uh, now's the time to do it. So he comes February 15th and I'm talking to him and I see this, it might've been March 1st. I get forget the exact date that the, the pandemic really hit us. But uh, right about then I said, you know, we can probably do this in the next week or two, but we are afraid that within three to four weeks, we cannot do it. We'll have to, you know, you know mm. the hospital may be closed to anything other than emergencies and COVID. So I had two patients who said, okay, let's do it now. And we got it done in the next day or two, semi-electively. And they were both in the hospital for a few days as expected after that surgery and went home back to their home. So it worked out okay. So, and then we had other patients who delayed it. I don't think in my own personal experience, I had any uh, catastrophes because they delayed it. And we probably had a, a month or so where I really had to go to bat for them to get anyone in for an elective procedure. The feeding tubes are a little more elective. They can be put off a week or two or three almost always, unless someone ends up in dire straits in the emergency room. Those we could put off a little longer. So it, it was a balancing act and it was difficult. We're past that now, at least out here on the West Coast. And, and I know the Northern mid-country is in the midst of an unbelievable surge, but at least on the West Coast, we are back to doing all our elective procedures when we want to do them pretty easily. Um, although we're gearing up for a surge, my own hospital is about to open a 125-bed surge unit on top of its 400 beds that it has right now. Wow. So many, so many layers. Thanks for kind of explaining how that process has worked for you over the last few months, Dr. My last question for you is one that I think that I know the answer to, but we're getting some questions uh, at the chapter level about it. I'm guessing your clinic is recommending that everyone you see receives a flu shot this season. Is that an even stronger emphasis than in years past? Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. Um, the flu could be bad this year. We, we never know about the flu until December, January, but we know COVID is surging and the, the the presentations are so similar and the management is so different that uh, if we can minimize the number of people getting the flu, it will help. Plus, we get a surge of flu patients every year. My personal group practice where we take care of pulmonary patients, intensive care unit patients, 24-7 uh, at a uh, level three hospital, we frequently go from a, a census of Oh, 20 or 25 in August, September to a census of 50 in January and February. And it's predominantly flu related. It's not elective surgeries. It's, it's not anything else. It's flu leading to pneumonia, leading to other complications, and they end up in the hospital. Mm -hmm. So we don't need that surge and the COVID surge. So the flu shot has a high likelihood of minimizing the flu surge 
but people have to take it. And we've not been good about that in the past. Thank you again, Dr. Lou Libby, pulmonologist and ALS specialist at the Oregon Clinic. Really appreciate your time and expertise during Respiratory Care Awareness Week. Uh, It's great having you on today. Thanks. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Well, thank you again, Dr. Lou Libby, for taking some time to talk to us here during Respiratory Care Week and really have to echo what what Dr. Lou Libby said. A big thank you to those respiratory therapists who work tirelessly in the ALS clinic setting to make sure that respiratory health is front of mind. And again, having that conversation at a time when it is topical to everybody as we continue to go through the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, yes, and extend a thank you to all of our frontline healthcare workers doing very challenging and selfless work and have been for months now. So thank you to all of you out there listening. That's going to do it for this episode. We'll be back next week after the election, and we hope all of you who haven't yet had a chance to vote are able to do so safely. A reminder that you can subscribe to this show at connectingals.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also follow us on uh, Facebook and Twitter for the latest content. This episode was produced by Garrett Tiedemann of the ALS Association's Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter. Thank you all for listening. We'll connect with you again soon. 